Christ's mission is our mission. There's a reason why our call to share Christ and his gospel is called the Great Commission. Not just another commission, it is the greatest task you will ever be assigned. Do you know that the tremendous blessing of helping somebody walk from darkness into light is an opportunity that we will never have again after we die? Never. There's no lost people in heaven. There's no need for evangelism. You have one chance to be a part of the work of Christ in saving someone's soul. And you're living in that chance right now. Well, good morning again. It is a privilege and a pleasure to be with you this morning to worship God in the preaching and teaching of his word. As I mentioned earlier, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and the uh, title of this morning's message is The Gospel-Centered Life. Before we go any further, I'd like to pray. Father, um, thank you so much for the opportunity to stand before your people and share these brief thoughts concerning your word. I pray that as we expound on the scriptures that Christ might be exalted, that Christ might become more beautiful to us, and that as a result, Lord, our lives might be not only instructed and changed and challenged, but that we would be conformed into the image of your dear son. Remove any distractions or anything that will keep us from receiving what you have for us personally. I pray, Father, that you would help me to speak with clarity and accuracy the things that are contained in your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And part of my role at, at Coastal Church is uh, leadership development. And as so, I have the opportunity to mentor men and disciple men and at times counsel people. And one of the things that I like to do as part of the initial assessment stage is ask people, well, could you explain what the gospel is for me in a paragraph? Could you give me a elevator speech of the gospel. And out of every 10 people that I ask that question to, I usually get about eight different responses. Some people tell me, well, it's the good news. And indeed, it is the good news. Some people tell me, well, it's living according to God's word. And yes, if you receive the gospel, you need to live according to God. Yeah, the gospel is the Bible and sanctification. All those wonderful things are contained in the Bible and in the gospel. But what is the gospel? And today, in our text, we will see how the Apostle Paul defines the gospel. Now, many of us make New Year's resolutions. I know I do. I make an assessment of the various areas of my life, my spiritual life, my health, my family life, friends, ministry, finances, and how I spend my leisure time. And then I make measurable goals that include action steps to grow in those areas. And as many of us who are doing this and to those who may not be doing this, I'd like to encourage us that in 2024, we would purpose to live a gospel-centered life in every area of our life. 
Now, if you're already living a gospel-centered life, the challenge for you is this. In what area of living the gospel-centered life can you grow, mature, or do better for the glory of God? So what I'd like to do with this text today is review the text and see how God, how Paul, excuse me, explains the gospel, and then I would like to come back to verses 1 and 2 and look at how these verses use various words and to describe how we interact with the gospel. And as we explore these, I want to give you four ways we interact with the gospel. And perhaps we will gain new insights and a fresh way for us to think about the gospel and how it impacts our lives. Now, this chapter is really interesting because the Apostle Paul usually, in his writings, he tells you what to believe or he gives you the theology of a specific subject first and then he tells you what to do about it. Here in chapter 15, it seems that the order is inverted. He highlights for them or he reminds them of how they responded or how they interacted with the gospel, and then he proceeds to explain what the gospel is, which brings us to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you Believed, And so Paul in this text, he explains the gospel. He says, I delivered unto you, I'm giving to you what was delivered unto me. He says first that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. In making that statement, he highlights two very important things. One, he highlights the problem, sin which makes the gospel necessary. According to Isaiah 59, 2, that our sin separates us from God and it separates us eternally for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul in his writings teaches us that we were by nature children of wrath. We are in rebellion against God from 
birth, which makes the gospel necessary. Then he says that Christ died, which highlights the humanity of Christ, because Christ was 100% human and 100% God. Only a human being can actually die, that he died for our sins. Then he proceeds to say that he was buried, placed in a tomb, and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures, which highlights some very important things too. Number one, that Jesus was God. Because only God can arise from the dead. Only God can raise the dead. And for the second time, he uses that phrase, according to the scriptures, which points to the fact that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is the fulfillment of over 400 prophecies of the Old Testament. And so he gives us this brief explanation of the gospel. And we, here we at Coastal, we have even made it more simple than that. We say, Jesus is God. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose bodily again from the dead. And now all we have to do is repent of our sins, believe the gospel, the substitutionary death of Christ and receive Christ into, into our lives. And I like that substitutionary death because when he talks about substitution, he's talking about something really powerful, that when Christ died on the cross, God took the sin and the punishment and the wrath that was justly due to us for our sin, and he placed it upon Christ. And in exchange, he takes, when we receive Christ and repent of our sins, imputes or credits to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. Paul goes on to further his claims and says, listen, Christ was seen of more than 500 people after his resurrection for the 40 days that he was on earth before his ascension. He says, some have died, but some are still alive. In a court here in America, oftentimes all it takes is one witness to establish a case. And the scripture says, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So we have the testimony of prophetic word being fulfilled, the testimony of people being giving us credence to the fact that Christ indeed rose from the dead. And this is the gospel that we preach. This is the gospel that we believe. This is the gospel that saves us. And so, um, now, the first way, I want to go back to verse number one. Paul says this. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached. Now, not only did he preach it to them, but they heard it. The gospel is meant to continuously be preached to ourselves and to others. And here's the first way we interact with the gospel. We preach it. Why must we preach the gospel to ourselves and to others? To others because there's a dying world and to ourselves, which brings us to letter A, because we can become skilled practitioners of forgetting the gospel. And here's how we do it. Many can inadvertently 
live with a distorted view of the gospel. We see it as the thing that God used to save us. We see it as the entry point into God's kingdom. We see it as the door we must walk through to obtain eternal life. However, the gospel is not just the means of our salvation. The gospel is the means of our sanctification. The gospel not only sets us free from the eternal punishment of sin, but the gospel empowers us to continuously become free from the power of sin. We preach the gospel to ourselves because it reminds us to live with an eternal perspective. We preach the gospel to ourselves because it reminds us to focus on the heavenly realities, on the beauties of heaven. We preach the gospel to ourselves because it reminds us that our emotions, good, bad, or indifferent, must bow to the gospel. It reminds us that, reg that regardless of circumstances, the gospel is what matters. The gospel is going to win. So we must continually preach the gospel to the lost, and we must continually preach the gospel to ourselves. The Bible says this in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our sinful hearts can lie to us, so we must, must continually preach the gospel to ourselves. Our emotions can lie to us, and so we must continuously preach the gospel to ourselves. Our past can lie to us, and so we must continuously preach the gospel to ourselves. Our circumstances can lie to us, and so we must continuously preach the gospel to ourselves. The fear of unwanted outcomes can lie to us, so we must continuously preach the gospel to ourselves. The fear of what people might say or what people might think can lie to us, and so we must continuously preach the gospel to ourselves. The fear of how others perceive us can deceive us, and so we must continuously preach the gospel to ourselves. It doesn't matter what people say about you or how they think about you or how they treat you or if they ignore you or if they talk about you. The gospel is going to win. We have to remind ourselves they did it to Jesus, so they're going to do it to us. I like to say that we need to learn how to live with a some say mentality. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the disciples responded by saying, well, some say that you're Jeremiah. Some say that you are Elijah. Some say that you are one of the prophets. And Peter gives this famous response. He said, but who do you say that I am when Jesus asks you are the Christ, the son of the living God? See, Jesus, the perfect, holy son of God, knew that there were erroneous perspectives about him out there. And so, like I said, 
In order to live a gospel-centered life, we're going to have to learn to live with the somesays of this world. We want to make sure we don't get sick with the deadly disease called gospel amnesia. So we must constantly preach the gospel to ourselves and others because, like I said, we can become skilled practitioners of forgetting the gospel. Now, the second thing he says in verse 1, it says, which you received. The gospel has to be received. And this brings us to the second way we interact with the gospel. Number two, we received it. The gospel has to be received. James chapter 1, verse 21, there is a phrase in that verse that says that we are to receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says these words, as many as received him, Christ, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even as many as believe in his name. Now, what does that mean? And Paul, in verse 1, Paul has reminded them that they heard the gospel, they had it preached to them, in other words, they heard it, and then he reminds them that they received it. In other words, they internalized it. They made it their own. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 records these words. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it what it is, the really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Now, I like the modern English version, which says it this way. For this reason, we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it truly is, the word of God, listen to this, which effectively works also in you who believe. Uh, my son Tito, who's back there, I think he's in the in the back seat. One day we went to the 7-Eleven, and I took Tito and Caleb with me to the 7-Eleven. Of course, I walked in and I said to them, "You're not getting anything. I'm just going in and out." And somehow, they walked out with candy out of 7-Eleven. Yes, that is a little bit of a softy when it comes to the kids. So Tito winds up getting these fishy fish gummy bears. And so he takes about five or six fish gummy bears and he puts them in his mouth and his cheeks are swollen. He's, he's chewing these fishy gummies and I'm watching him because I'm scared that he's going to choke if all those things go down. And so then he does something interesting. He walks over to the garbage can and he spits them out. And I look at him and said, Tito, why did you have me buy the fish? She said, I just like the taste. <laughs> he didn't swallow them. He didn't digest them. He didn't internalize it. And it reminds me of what some people do with the gospel. Sometimes they just chew it and spit it out. They just like the taste. Jesus, in telling his parable about the different kinds of, of seeds, he talks about this when he says that some people, 
receive the word of God with joy, but it doesn't take root and later they fall away. They don't internalize it. This reminds me of a story when I was uh, on staff at Calvary Chapel, and much like we do here on Sundays, they had people at the front to come to pray. And uh, I was was at the bottom at the prayer in the front, uh, and then a lady came down, and she has tears streaming down her eyes. And she says, Pastor Tito, I need you to pray for me. I am going to divorce my husband. He's cheated on me for the 10th time. I look at her and I say to her, I said, lady, if you divorce your husband, not even God Almighty would be mad at you. (laughs) And I said, but can you do me a favor? I said, before you make a choice to file for divorce, can we meet a few times? Because I would hate for you to make a decision on the basis of a reaction of your husband's infidelity. So we start meeting and I start talking to her about forgiveness and processing information and the, start counting, counting the cost and making the list and gave her a couple of books about you know, restoration and forgiveness and all, the, all those things. In the process of doing that, I also meet with the husband who has been attending church for 10 years. In my meeting with him, as I usually do, I said, can you explain the gospel for me? He did not understand the gospel. He wasn't saved that day. He repented of his sins and he received Christ into his life. God changed that man into a totally different man. He had a humility, he had repentance, He had a desire to see restoration in his life. When his wife met with me next time, she said, what did you do with my husband? Somebody stole him. I said, I didn't do anything to him. I said, Christ got a hold of his heart. And over the period of months and months and months, as she witnessed the transformation, she decided to forgive him one more time. They're still married today and they have a great marriage and we still stay in contact. By the way, they gave me permission to share this story. That's what the gospel does. It transforms hearts when it is internalized. And when our hearts are transformed, our lives will be transformed. There will be repentance. There will be humility. There will be a desire to want to follow the word of God. We must not only hear the gospel regularly and preach it to ourselves and others, but we must receive it. We must internalize it. This brings us to the next way we interact with the gospel that Paul mentions in verse 1. He says, by which you stand. Number three, we stand in it. We stand in the gospel. To stand means to be firm to be established, to be in one place, to be rooted, to be planted, not to be moved. And it also infers that God is the one who empowers us to stand. In Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49, Jesus is telling a parable about two foundations. And he teaches us that the hearing and the doing of the word of Christ is what gives us stability and strength and durability to weather the storms 
of life. When we have internalized it and put it to practice, as a result, it is effective and powerful and life-changing and life-sustaining. I like what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He goes on later on in the verses and says, having done all to stand, stand therefore. When we are standing in the gospel, we will not be moved. When we are standing in the gospel, we will not be shaken. When we are standing in the gospel, we will not be dissuaded. When we are standing in the gospel, we may get discouraged, but we don't stay discouraged. When we are standing in the gospel, we might get frustrated, but we don't stay frustrated. When we are standing in the gospel, we may feel lonely sometimes, but we know that we are not alone. People might disappoint me, but I'm still standing. People might frustrate me, but I'm still standing. People might talk about me, but I'm still standing. People might misunderstand me and misrepresent me, but I am still standing. Jude chapter 24, Jude verse 24, excuse me, says these words. Now unto him that is able to keep you from stumbling and or falling and present you before the presence of his glory with exceeding great joy. One translation says it this way, not unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand. It is the gospel that gives us the power to stand. Or oh, I have to ask you, are you standing in the gospel? What are you relying on to keep you standing? Are you standing firm? <laughs> this reminds me of a story. I had a uh, tree in my backyard, a tree that grew amongst my shrubberies. And uh, full disclosure, it was a weed that was overgrown way too much. And this weed turned into a tree. And so I went out there and chopped all the branches off and cut the branches down and this tree there. And so I get down all the way to the tree and so I start pulling the tree out from where it is and every time I would pull it, it would pop back up. And so I decided to stand and jump on the tree but every time it would pop back up. I got leaves in my pockets, leaves on my head, dirt all over my body. I'm, and finally I said, I know what I'll do. I will take the tree stump and I will twist it around, then stand on it. But guess what happened? The tree popped back up. What I finally had to do, it dawned on me because it, as you must know by now, agriculture is not my forte. I had to dig deep around the tree and go down about a foot and then cut the roots of the tree of this overgrown weed in order to pull it out. In the same way, when the gospel is working effectually in our lives, it will cause us to stand. 
because it will cause us to be rooted. Robert H. Thune writes in his book, The Gospel-Centered Life, the gospel is not only the means of our salvation, but it is the means of our transformation. And I would like to add to that quote, the gospel is not only the means of our transformation, but it is the means of our fortification. We are strengthened and fortified by the gospel. The gospel causes us to stand. Now, in verse 2, Paul goes on to remind them that it was the preaching of the gospel that saved them. He says, by which you are saved. The gospel is the means through which God brings us into salvation. We are born again through the incorruptible seed of the word of God. 1 Peter 1.23. Romans 10.17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ or the word of God, depending on what translation you are reading. The preaching of the gospel is the means of grace through which we are saved. Then the text goes on to to teach us that we must believe it, which brings us to our fourth and final point. We believe into it. Paul says, therefore, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. The word vain there is the Greek word ikei. It means without purpose or cause, without success or effort. The noun has the connotation that their faith was futile or empty, useless or fake. It wasn't real faith. The gospel didn't take. They understood it. They agreed with it. They even professed it, but it didn't take root. They didn't internalize it. It was just intellectual assent. These people that he's referring to, in vain, they didn't have real saving faith. Many people struggle because they are too busy doing rather than believing In John chapter 6, verse 49, Jesus was asked the question, what must we do in order to do the works of God? Jesus responded by saying, the work of God is that you might believe on the one whom he has sent. What you believe about God impacts what you believe about yourself. What you believe about God and yourself impacts how you believe about others. What you believe impacts how you deal with your emotions. What you believe impacts how you hear and process information. What you believe will impact how you prioritize your relationship with God. Paul, in his writing to Timothy about all the things that he suffered for the sake of the gospel, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he says this, For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded 
that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. When God imparts faith to us, it is a persuasion. It is a knowing. It is a confidence. You know, I have to ask you today, what does your faith look like? Are you persuaded? Is it a confident knowing? Or is it just intellectual assent? Are you struggling? Are you wavering? So as I bring our time together to a close, I want to challenge you to end this year by assessing where you are in these four areas of interaction with the gospel, the preaching of it, the receiving of it, the standing in it, and the believing in it. And if you are deficient or if you are weak in one of these areas, by the power of the Holy Spirit and with with God's word, ask God to help you to grow in this area. Decide that the year 2024, that you are going to live a gospel-centered life. If you are here under the sound of my voice and you have not yet given your life to Christ, if you have not repented of your sins, if you have not believed the gospel and received Christ into your life and have the evidence of the Holy Spirit been sealed with the Holy Spirit, I want to encourage you. Behold, now is the time of salvation. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Don't leave this place without receiving Christ into your life. Don't enter into 2024 the same way you lived 2023. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to share your word. I pray that you would help us all to grow in these various areas, Lord. Help us to grow in your grace and in your knowledge. Help us to love you with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, Lord. Help us to love righteousness and hate iniquity, Lord. Give us a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. Pour out your spirit upon us in fresh ways, Lord God. And conform our emotions, intentions, and affections toward your word, toward your will, toward your purposes for our lives, all for the sake of your glory and your kingdom. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.